I think you have a gift. Um, so I'm never going to try to say it again because I won't be able to do it that way. But uh, so Jesus, you know, touch, puts the fingers in the ears and spits and touch the tongue. And, and this is after he's already drawn this man away from the crowd for just some personal one-on-one time. And he looks into heaven and he sighs and he says, be open. And just immediately that tongue is loose. The ears are open. And this guy is able to speak clearly and freely and, you know, practically becomes an orator at the time. You know, it's just an incredible miracle. And really what's happening there, though, is um, it's a symbol of what's needing to happen in the disciples It's a symbol of what's needing to happen in the people that are following Jesus and the crowds, every single one of them. And if you will, every single one of us is this mute, deaf, impedimented, (laughs) I made that up, man who needs to have Jesus free us and loose us from just unbelief and from bondage and from the cares of this world that are keeping us from living for Jesus and understanding Jesus and comprehending Jesus. There's something that's happening there and it's a symbol of what needs to happen in the hearts of the disciples as we get into chapter eight. Okay. And so just have that in mind that and, and we prayed last week. You remember even some people raised their hands and said, Lord, I'm that deaf mute man, loose my ears, loosen my tongue. Let me be able to know you and pray to you and talk about you. Free this guy, free this girl. And we prayed that out at the end of last week. And, uh, and so that, let that be in mind as we move in to chapter eight, where it says in those days, the multitude being very great And having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And so if this is a little bit of a deja vu to you as we get into this chapter, like, didn't we just teach this? Didn't? Dustin just teach this a couple weeks ago, you know, like, oh my goodness. Well, it's because it is a little bit of a deja vu um, that Jesus had done a healing. They did a, um, a feeding. They did a boat trip. And it's almost a repeated order of what happened just a couple chapters ago, only it's in different locations. It's a little bit of a, it's miracles to different people and different um, nationalities of people. It's totally Different groups, different peoples, different miracles, and yet similar, okay? Because God is trying to get something across to us in these chapters. When I was in uh, freshman year in high school, for some reason, I was recommended to take this college-level biology class. I have no idea where that recommendation came from, um, but it was brutal, you know? So I take this class... And I thought I understood the lectures. I seemed to understand the labs. I had a lot of fun in the labs anyways. I mean, we were blowing stuff up, lighting it on fire, whatever else, you know. But then when it came to be test time, um, I couldn't take a test to save my life. I flunked all my tests, did great on the homework, and somehow, you know, screeched through with some sort of a passing grade after that. But 
But something that that biology teacher always told us is he, I'll never forget, chalkboard, and he had uh, chopped his finger off when he was younger, and he'd always point to the chalkboard and rub his nub on this chalk. And I was like, oh, like, seems like there should be a fingernail um, <laughs> scraping, but you know, anyways. But I always remember him with his, with his nub or whatever going, if I repeat it, it's on the test. If I repeat it, it's on the test, all right? And so if there's ever a repetition, it's something that you need to know. And that's something that's going on here. And it always happens in theology. Paul will even write in some of his epistles that what I'm telling you, it's not superfluous for me to say. And what that means is it's not too much to repeat this again and again because you've got to know this. And so even the stories and the miracles and how they're kind of deja vu, it's because, are you getting it? Are you getting it? And honestly, even me studying it, and I've taught through the gospel of Mark a lot, many times. This section right here, I'm trying to get, I'm I'm trying to, it's been tough for me. I'm going to read a little bit of someone else because he seems to get it. And I want him to help explain it to us because it's being repeated, repeated. We've got to learn it. And so here we go. Here's the repeated thing, similar anyways, um, that big multitude following Jesus, throngs of followers, lots of people getting healed. Miracles are happening. That'll draw a crowd. And so the crowd has been drawn and yet they've, uh, uh, they all are getting hungry. They have nothing to eat. And so, uh, Jesus calls his disciples and he says, I'm having compassion on these guys. Now the word compassion, it, uh, the language is, uh, I'll just read it. Splanchnizo, um, which sounds like an Italian dish. Okay. It's a spread cheese. No. Okay. Or something. Um, but what it means is I'm being moved in my inward parts for these people. Okay. It literally is translated bowels of compassion. All right. So have you ever cared so much for someone that it's almost like just a groaning inside of you? It's almost like your stomach's growling. Like there is There's some pain or some social injustice happening or this person's hurting or a a child is hurt or something like that where it's just you begin to weep and you begin to wail or you begin to have compassion. This is a language that's used regularly um, for Jesus to people that are hurting or the people that are um, needed. And, um, and here we have that he he cares about these people because they obviously have been following me. They seem to be interested into what I, what I'm doing. And it's been three days, no food. Uh, this week, there's a guy that's, um, that I've been sharing the gospel with in Prineville. And, uh, he's kind of been coming around the church a little bit and he calls me a lot. He's really interested in me. Uh, I, I helped him one day with some financial situation and it got him out of a bind and now he's doing really well and he'll just call me all the time. Well, he calls me this week and he's like, I just have, I'm just decided to do a, a five day fast and I'm three days into it. I just purging at the new year, you know, and he's like three days into it. He's like, and I'm so hungry, you know? And I was like, yeah, I get that. We do fast as a church and, and uh, we understand how that is, but three days with no food, that's like, 
just about the tipping point where once you get past about three or four days, you kind of lose the hunger cravings and your body starts to kind of start feeding off of itself and you don't quite have that same like, um, well, they're at that point right now where it's still, mamma mia, you know, I'm starving. I could use a meatball sub right about now. And we can all think of those Western movies, you know, where a guy's out at his campfire and some, some, you know, ruffians come through the woods to the campfire and they're like, it's been two days since we've eaten, you know, and they just want something out of that cast iron skillet. Well, all of these people are so hungry. Jesus cares about that. In verse four, his disciples answer, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness. Now, if you're having deja vu at all, you're cringing that they're asking this question. Why would you be cringing that they're asking this question? Because Jesus has already shown that he is more than able to handle the cafeteria situation for the multitudes out in the wilderness. Um, If you text on a phone or a smartphone these days, maybe you've seen the emoji uh, of the person going like this. (laughs) You guys ever seen that one? People send it to me all the time for some reason. But, you know, it's just like, oh, you know. And so just the exact thing that happened was a chapter six where we were almost in a similar story, almost the same thing. And it's like, oh, yeah, all these people are hungry. Man, this is unfortunate because what are we going to do? We're just so far out here. And then, and you can just picture one of the disciples hearing the other disciples say that and being like, no, no, no don't, you know, don't say that. Um, and, uh, and so uh, he asks them, how many loaves do you have? And they say, seven. I mean, almost every sentence of this is a face slap moment because Jesus, this is a repeated, almost the same question. How many loaves do we have? And you'd think that, you know, sometimes like if I'm out working with Alan out at his ranch and, uh, you know, I'm pretty clueless as to what I'm doing, you know, maybe he'll kind of prompt me as, you know, something like slide rope or something, you know, or something like that or, or sidestep or roll the calf or whatever, you know, and, and maybe he'll prompt me with a little something or Mike might prompt me with something where I know where you're going with it. I know where you're going with this. Okay, we need to roll or sidestep or, you know, grab the rope, grab the tail, whatever. Just, I just need a little prompt. You don't got to give me the whole, you know, sermon about it. We'll get it. Okay. And these guys aren't there. They're not getting it. So Jesus is kind of prompting with a little, so how many loaves? You got any loaves? Seven. <laughs> Still doesn't seem like enough. I mean, there's seven. There's like four thousand. I still, I don't know what we're gonna do, right? And uh, Sue, verse six, and I think that's how Mark wrote it in verse six. So he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before uh, the multitude. And so this is, this is just so crazy. And I wish there were more detail as to how a miracle happens. Because it seems like it's kind of happening in front of everybody. It's not like Jesus like 
puts the big red and white checkered tablecloth over the the seven fish and then voila you know and you know there's a spread like somehow it's like happening in front of the eyes it's and you know it's like i just want a little more info i want a little like and then there was a crazy bibbidi bobbidi boo or there was like a little the sound of fairy dust falling and then there was more you know but it's just it's pretty like naturally like he blessed it and he broke it and he distributed it and it's just there you know it's just happening um and it's interesting, too, that Jesus gives us a good example to follow in thanking God for our food before we eat. Even when it's only a little bit and it doesn't seem like it's going to go very far, you know, and some of you may have lived like that uh, in the in the leaner times in our economy. Um, but Jesus, he's just like, man, we're thankful even for seven loaves, Lord, use use it. In verse 7, they also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he set them also before them. So just if it just blessed and set them before. And whoosh, there's just this giant spread for 4,000 people. I'd also be interested to taste what this, this is probably the best fish and bread food you've ever had. I mean, it's Jesus, you know, he's like, you like it, the Parmesan? I put it the Parmesan, you know, <laughs> A little garlic butter, okie dokie, you know, I don't know. Um, and uh, verse 8, so they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftovers. Um, perhaps your translation says, they ate and were satisfied. And clear back uh, in uh, at the beginning of this, the disciples were wondering, how could we get enough food to satisfy this crowd? Or to fill the crowd. And here we see, like, don't worry about it. It's been done. They're satisfied or they are filled. Um, and so uh, this great miracle has taken place to where you you once had seven loaves and now you've got seven baskets. Um, seven large baskets of leftover uh, frag fragments. Um, the word basket here, uh, speaks of, um, a basket big enough to fit a man into. It's the same language that's used of Paul when he first becomes a Christian and people are trying to kill him and they have to let him out of a city, uh, across the wall. One of those big wall city walls, they have to lower him down in a basket. And it's the same, uh, type of basket that's used in this, um, account here. And then it says in verse nine, those who had eaten were about 4,000 and he sent them away. Um, Matthew's gospel says that it was 4,000 men besides women and children. So uh, this is just the men that are numbered plus, you know, maybe uh, what's the old song? Two girls for every boy. Yeah, I think it's the Beach Boys or something like that. Maybe there were two girls for every boy, so maybe we're talking 12,000 people, or maybe it's, you know, every guy had a girl, and, you know, whatever. It's probably around 10,000 people or something like that um, that were with this number, or with this group. Now, the uh, there are some similarities in these uh, two feeding miracles from, I think it's chapter six is where the first um, account is. 
And because they're so similar almost, even as we read it, you're kind of like, ah, I know how this goes. Um, a lot of critics of the scripture say that this is a made-up story, that this was made up to appeal to Gentiles or non-Jews. The first feeding was for Jewish people, and this one's on the other side of the lake where there's um, Gentiles or non-Jews. And so some say, oh, Mark made this up so the Romans would appreciate a good feeding story because they're Gentiles, so you got to have a Gentile feeding story, which, of course, flies in the face of our understanding of the Bible, and that is that the Bible is without error because it was breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Not only do we just have confidence in what's called the inerrancy of the Bible, which means the Bible is without error, um, but there are enough differences in the story as well to make it clearly a different um, account. And um, let me just list those real quick so that you... uh, We've got the first feeding began with five loaves and two fish. The second had seven loaves and a few small fish. So we've got different numbers of the starting ingredients, if you will. The word for fish is different in each account. In the feeding of the 4,000, it's from the Greek word ichthidia. And you might know that from the ichthyous Christian fish on the back of your car, or the ichthus. Um, And it's best uh, rendered as sardines. So they had a nice sardine dish. Uh, when Lonnie cooked for us last week, uh, um, our pheasant hunt, uh, we had a can of sardines sitting. I don't know if you noticed that, Marcus. There's a can of sardines sitting on the table next to the mustard. And I was like, I'm just going to have the ribeye. You know? <laughs> I'm just not, I've never eaten canned fish with the eyeballs. You love them, huh? It's a, okay. It's the eyeballs, really, to be honest with you. Maybe the spine, too. Anyways, um, I'm a little bit mental. I know that. Uh, Anyways, uh, that actually the sardines along with bread was the staple diet of that Gentile local population. Uh, The numbers of the people who are fed are different. In the first account, there's 5,000 men in chapter 6, verse 44, which would amount to a larger number when women and children were included. Um, And then in verse 9 here, (laughs) 4,000. is uh, the total number of men. In the first feeding, the crowd was with Jesus for only one day, and in the second feeding, for three days. The first feeding was in the springtime, where we read about green grass in chapter 6, verse 39, which is translated, the light green of the spring. And yet, in this today's text, there's no mention of the season that we're in. Uh, in today's feeding, the people are not broken into groups and orderly set apart as uh, Jesus does in the first. Today, they were just, hey, sit down on the ground. But interesting, chapter six, Jesus was very orderly in the way that he did that. And he did that to speak to kind of that orderly institution within the Jews. Um, numbers of leftovers are different. Uh, the diff- the types of baskets in the Greek are different baskets. Um, there was a backdrop of a revolutionary uprising when the feeding of the 5,000 was happening, and we don't read of that revolution um, here. 
Uh, final important difference is the role of Jesus in the two accounts. In the feeding of the 4,000, which was today, uh, Jesus seems to be the more prominent character in the story. Um, and then in the, in the, uh, the uh, first feeding, the disciples got to have more of a role in the part of the distribution. So anyways, all that to say, some of it you might not care, but it's very real when you're um, defending the scripture and uh, the authority of the Bible in a day of skepticism, uh, when people are critical of the Bible and don't want that to have to be authority, to be the authority of their life. They are looking for reasons to dismiss it. And there's really good evidence that these are different accounts in different places for different people, different numbers of people, different types of food, different leftover amount, different, like the distribution, all everything. I and mean, there's tons and diff- of differences here. Moving on into verse 10, immediately, I'm not sure if I wrote this out right. Mine says immediately got into the boat with the disciples. It seemed like we're missing a, a subject there. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples. I think one of my kids hit the delete button right there or something. So he got into the boat with his disciples and he came to the region of Dalmanutha. Or maybe your Bible says Magdala, which was also a fishing center. And the, the name of this place means salted pickled fish. Okay, so they go from feeding fish to a place that's a, it was a factory basically for these salted canned sardines or whatnot. Something you guys all love. Um, in verse 11, so they come to pickled fish territory and the Pharisees come out. The Pharisees, if you don't know who the Pharisees are, the Pharisees were basically full-time religious people. And their whole job was given over to keeping rules and making lists of rules and making sure you kept them too. So really just the fun people to be around in society, you know. And uh, these guys were religious, ritualistic, legalistic, sticks in the mud. Okay, I'm not going to lie to you. And even Jesus felt this way about them. And they did not like Jesus. Very early on in the Gospels, they're trying to put him to death trying to catch him in twists and plots and all kinds of things. And as they pull up to Pickled Fish Town, here they come. And, you know, Jesus is probably like, here we go. This is going to be a fun afternoon with the Pharisees walking out. And it's uh, it's interesting because it says that they came out and they began to dispute with him. This is just going to be just a great time with the Pharisees. It just starts out so nice, doesn't it? Um, uh, now, Check out, it's interesting, when you study the Greek, you get even more almost colors in the picture to see really what was going on. Because the word that they came out means they came out as if in military rank. Okay? So they they came out to do business. So they came out, you know, with the numbers of them and probably from the greatest to the least or whatever. They came out to do some business with Jesus, and he's going to answer for himself, okay? And um, and it says that they began to dispute him. Now, it would be one thing if they just had some questions. Hey, Jesus, hey, man, I've been hearing about you, been hearing you talk, and we've been talking, and we've been thinking. We just have some questions, you know? It's, you know, just, is it okay to dialogue? That was not their intention behind it. Uh, they came to uh, oppose him and to dispute him. And uh, 
the word asked here, uh, or seeking from him a sign, the word, maybe your Bible says asked, um, it means to attempt to gain control of someone. And this word sign or test, seeking a, a sign or a test, doesn't mean test something to determine the merit of it, but rather uh, it's an obstacle or a stumbling block that they're putting in front of you to discredit you. Okay, so just when you look at the Greek language that's being used here, it's a lot worse than it sounds in the English. Doesn't sound that bad here. Like, Jesus can handle these guys. They're coming out and they are just, they're baring their teeth and they're sick and tired of Jesus. And they're going to put him to the test and try to trip him up. And uh, they want to challenge and they want to confront him. And, uh, and they want a sign, okay? And the sign that it means here, you know, um, it's not just a miracle that they want because Jesus has been doing miracles, all right? Uh, Jesus has had plenty of opportunities that he's been showing compassion. He's been doing the works of the Messiah. He's just multiplied fish. He just healed a, a mute deaf man. Man, he has been doing nothing but signs, but these Pharisees, these religious guys, they want something that, that's like from heaven. They want some sort of sign from heaven, like Elijah and the calling down the fire, right? They want something like that. Bring something like that down. And, uh, and Jesus, you know, Jesus, he's a fair guy. He's a fair God. And if people are genuinely have questions, he's going to work with that. He has no problem with that. And it... You know, oh, Courtney's a teacher. Anyone else was a teacher? Any, you were a teacher, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Were. Uh, you know, but but some of us went to school. I think maybe I don't know. Um, and you know that there's there's the kid that has a question and man maybe he's just struggling through something, doesn't get it, needs help. And then there's the kid that's just disrupting the class and just trying to stump the teacher, or trying to show they know more than the teacher or something like that. And the teacher is finally like, you know what? you have so many questions, why don't you just stay after class and hang out during recess? And like, oh, all of a sudden you don't have as many questions, right? Uh, well, Jesus, you know, with these guys that are just trying to trip him up and they're religious and they're self-righteous, he doesn't have a lot of um, patience for that. And he basically is saying, you know what, you're on your own. And in verse 12, when they ask him for this sign, he sighs deeply in his spirit. Um, back in chapter seven with the mute and, um, deaf man, when Jesus put the fingers in the ears, it says he looked up into heaven and he sighed. And here, just a couple verses later, here we have Jesus. And again, he's sighing deeply in his spirit. And he asked, why does this generation seek a sign? Why, why are they around here doing that? I've already been showing plenty of signs. What is your guy's problem? It's been nothing but signs. You're just, you're just being stubborn, you know? And he says, assuredly, I say to you that no sign shall be given to this generation. And so they have all that they need to know if Jesus is the Messiah. When Matthew talks about this same story, Jesus says to them, 
when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know, it's the old school, um, how's it go? Red at night, sailor's delight. You're supposed to be able to, to tell what the weather's going to be like out at sea. Red in morning, ta- uh, sailors take warning. You guys know that one? Or you guys in Polanyi, you're more of like a red and black, venom lack. Red and yellow will kill a fellow. I mean, isn't that something? You guys are like, oh, I get that one, right? That's more talking about snakes and whatnot. But, um, and so Jesus, he, but he's just being real with them. He's like, you guys know signs to determine things. Are you so dense that you've seen all that I'm doing? And he just calls them out on it. He calls them hypocrites there in Matthew's gospel. He says, you know how to deter- discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the prophet Jonah. I think Bill Ingvall would really like this section of scripture. You know, he's all about here's your sign, here's your sign, here's your sign. He could probably give Jesus some pretty sweet comic, you know, relief for these times of like, hey, no, I was just, you know, air drying my car. I thought I'd hang it up on a hanger. Well, you know, how he's so great at those here's your sign things. So Jesus does say that. He says to the Pharisees, you want a sign? Here's your sign. I'm going to give you what's called the sign of the prophet Jonah. And uh, Matthew uh, tells this in more detail where he says that just in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the whale for a number of day and nights, so will the son of man. That's me. He's calling himself son of man. Uh, He says, so will I be in the belly of the earth and then I will raise from the dead. And so essentially Jesus is saying, you want to know if I'm God? You want to know if I'm all that I say I am? Then why don't you stick around because I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise from the dead. And that is like, that's the sign of all signs. And wouldn't you say that's like pretty legit, you know? Yeah, I mean, a guy might be able to pull a penny out from behind your ear and like, ooh, you know, or you know, something like that. Maybe you can wiggle his Adam's apple. I mean, this is amazing stuff, right? But if you die for days and rise from the dead, I mean, that's like bona fide, full-blown sign from heaven. And Jesus says, it's the best sign. And that's why I can't wait for Easter with you guys and Resurrection Day. And I love to talk about the resurrection of Jesus and the disciples loved to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And the early church loved to talk about the resurrection of Jesus because it is the best proved fact in all of history. There is so much evidence that Jesus rose from the dead that great scholarly men, even in our present day, journalists and lawyers and judges and people who went out to prove that Jesus really is dead and that he never rose from the dead and let's just shut the Christians up they end up looking at the evidence and they find out this guy actually rose from the dead. And if he really rose from the dead, what does that mean about him? And Jesus says right here, what it means is everything that I say is true. Everything I say about who I am as the son of God is true. Everything I say about you've got to believe on me for your righteousness and not rest in your own works is true. Everything about the judgment to come 
is true. Everything about heaven and the hope of heaven is true. And you want a sign, here's your sign. And so I would encourage you guys, start looking up the resurrection of Jesus. Start researching it. I'll give you a lot when it comes to Easter time, but um, it is really something to get excited about. And Jesus is essentially telling the Pharisees that. And so Jesus essentially drops the mic in front of them right there, you know, and verse 13 says, left them. And getting into the boat again, he departed to the other side. There's a whole lot of getting in boats and going to the other side. It's mostly on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. So he's kind of going back and forth along the top um, third of the Sea of Galilee from the east to the west on the north end. And he goes to the other side. And now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them. So let's just go ahead and do this real quick. <laughs> okay. It's starting to hurt and get red. But if they would stop messing up, I would just have to know. Of course, I slap my forehead, but I'm, this is me. This is my daily life right here. I mean, I am just, the Lord's like, holy moly, man. You know, what, what do I need to do to get through to you? So here we go. They're in the boat. Oh, no. You can just picture the guy that was in charge of the picnic. And he like opens up the basket. He's like, oh, no. I was so busy with those, the army of Pharisees coming out. I forgot to pack a lunch, you know. And I like that it actually says they didn't have more than one loaf. Like, at least, hey, not a total failure. <laughs> Brought a loaf. And uh, they get in the boat and... Uh, Verse 15 says, he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So there's a little bit of a play on words happening right here. They're in the boat. Homeboy forgot the picnic lunch. You know, he's thinking about, I've only got one loaf of bread and a couple of the disciples are catching on like, what, what do we got in there? You know, like you forgot it. How good? You know. And then Jesus starts talking about something that is bread-like, okay? He's talking about leaven, all right? And you probably know more than me about leaven, all you great bakers out there. By the way, I see some treats back there. <laughs> and, uh, but leaven is essentially the yeast that causes the bread to rise. And leaven in scripture is always a picture of sin, okay? It's always a picture of sin. And the reason why is leaven starts out as just a tiny little crumb of the sourdough, if you will. It, it starts out as a tiny little crumb, but if you insert it into a just a plain lump of dough, as time goes on, that leaven will spread and infect the whole lump. And in the New Testament, specifically to the Corinthians, Paul writes about how we need to examine our lives and get the leaven out. In fact, during the times of Passover and the feast, the Jews would have to go through their house with a broom. Part of it was really, we're getting the leaven out, but part of it was symbolic of we're getting the leaven out. And the reason was we are to have a clean house before the Lord. We need to get the sin out of our life. And in the, in the epistles of the Corinthians, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so there's a picture there of, of sin and so he says to them, watch out for the sin of the Pharisees and the sin of Herod. But he says it with that bread term. It's a little play. He's trying to get them to think a little bit. 
And I got to admit, even for me, it's a little like I go a little bit cross-eyed when we're talking about this because I'm still thinking about bread too. But in other places, like in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus says that the sin of the Pharisees or the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Okay. And so he had just spent time with the Pharisees. He just dropped the mic with them about the one sign that he'll give them. And he's in the boat. And while they're in the boat, you know, and it's bobbing up and down or whatever, Jesus is thinking about those Pharisees. And he's like, these are the guys. You would think that it would be the Pharisees that would have been waiting for me to come as the Messiah. You would think that it would be the Pharisees that would want me. You would think that it would have been the Pharisees that the minute they see me, they would have just welcomed me with open arms as the Messiah, you know, and he, it's just bobbing up and down. Kind of, he's just thinking about that. He's like, they've got all the appearance of religion. They've got the clerical collars. They're all dressed in their Sunday best. They're in the synagogue all day long. They've got on the outside. They look like those would be the guys that would have God's favor, but no, they are just hypocrites. They just look the part, but on the inside of their heart, they are unbelieving just wicked, wicked men. And in Matthew 23, he just rails on the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And so he's, you know, he's kind of bobbing in the boat as they're going across the lake. Meanwhile, over there, picnic baskets empty. <laughs> you know, they're looking. And Jesus, of course, you know, he always, he knows what's going on. And oftentimes in the conversations in the Gospels, they're like over there like, oh no, guys, we're out of bread. What are you going to do? And Jesus is clear over there and he's like, ah, oh, you're out of bread, huh? He totally knows what's going on. <laughs> But instead of saying, ah, you're out of bread, huh? He says, man, those Pharisees, they are just, just the the sin of hypocrisy. It started out, maybe just one day. Maybe it was just one Sunday of being a hypocrite, or it would have been a Saturday, Sabbath day. Just one day, I'm just going to be a little bit of a hypocrite today. And it, it got into that guy, you know, it goes over to that guy and it just starts spreading. And all of a sudden, all Israel is hypocrites. All of Israel, all of the religious hoity-toities are hypocrites. And Jesus is trying to talk about the deeper things with his home, with his boys. And sadly, they weren't ready for it yet. In verse 16, they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we didn't bring any bread, huh? That's what they said. Okay. Insert face slap emoji. Now, the leaven of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. He also mentions the leaven of Herod, which was hostility. And in another place, Jesus calls Herod a fox, like a sly fox. So there's a couple things that were on Jesus's mind there, but the disciples are missing it. And they're still thinking about, they're still thinking about worldly temporal things that Jesus has clearly proven his faithfulness in. And Jesus, he's the guy that says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from me. And he's essentially saying, guys, you need some time where you just don't even worry about what's going on in your bellies because I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take care of that. From the very beginning, I told you, did the birds have to go? Do they worry about what they're going to eat? They always have plenty to eat. And I love you more than them. And you're worried about that. I'm trying to talk on deeper levels with you and you're just not ready for it. And Jesus, verse 17, knew that they were talking about bread again. And he says to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? 
Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Guys, just be honest. Can we just be honest for a minute reading this? I would have totally been thinking about bread. (laughs) I would have, I'm always thinking about food. So you got that going for me. But wouldn't you, I mean, when you read this, aren't you thinking about bread still? Like, oh yeah, they got some bread problems. They're going to have to, you know, I'm still thinking about bread. And Jesus is really saying, when are you going to get it? And if the disciples aren't getting it, I I just wonder if we are in Palena. I just wonder this is, this is crazy. This is deeper. This is much deeper. If you'll let yourself begin to go there, it's much deeper than a first reading or a simple reading of this text. He's saying, you guys have a hard heart. You're thinking about bread. You've got a hard heart. And I just heard the Lord just saying to me, Rory, you, you're, you're having trouble understanding this section. You've got a hard heart. And Jesus addresses six problems right here. Just very quickly, he says, they've got a perception problem. They're just not even able to consider or imagine what God's really talking about here. Did you catch that? He said, um, do you not perceive? So you can't even consider what I'm going on about right now. Nor understand. So the second thing is understand, which speaks of intelligence then, he, then the third problem is hard-hearted. Is your heart so hardened? Or the language actually means, is, or when it says there, is your heart still hardened? You might underline that in your Bible. These are the disciples. And they still have a hard heart. If they still have a hard heart, how well do I think I'm doing today? Like, these, poor, these, these guys, they're a hopeless case like me without the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you. Look at verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? So the next three problems, they have a seeing problem, which means think about it. Watch out for it and understand it. They have a hearing problem, which speaks of being able to receive news and pay attention and obey. And they have a remembering problem. Do you see that at the end of verse 18? Which means they haven't been keeping thinking about the faithfulness of God with the bread and the fish situation. Remember, keep thinking. He was faithful in the bread and the fish, feeding of the 4,000, feeding of the 5,000. And remember means then you respond about it. You remember to mention it to other people. You're talking about God's faithfulness. You're always mindful of God's faithfulness and his goodness. You're always calling it to mind. You're always making mention of it. Now, are you beginning to see how back in chapter seven, there was a mute deaf and I don't want to use dumb in a, in a derogatory way, but often that's a word that's used. Like there was a guy that was deaf and dumb and Jesus sighed up in heaven and released this guy from that like muteness and then dealing with the Pharisees, he sighs up in heaven. He wants them to be released, but they're so hard hearted. And now he's with the disciples and he's going, you guys, you're the deaf and dumb and mute guy. You guys, you're not listening. You're not paying attention. You're not remembering. And I believe that one of the great practices that helps us snap out of this 
is not only when we see and hear, like on a Sunday morning, you guys are faithful to be here. You guys are seeing and hearing, right? I think it's the remembering that brings like repentance out of this. It's the remembering that snaps us out of it. Because what does the remembering do? It, it starts to apply it to your life all the time. You're talking about it all the time. You're talking to Mike about it, Alan about it, Marcus, Holly. We're just, we're seeing each other at the post office. We're just, and we begin to talk about the faithfulness of God and in who he is and his goodness and faithfulness and forgiveness of sin and what he feels about sin. And we begin to break out of this mold of just, okay? Because it takes remembering. It takes mentioning. And he goes on in verse 21 and says, how is it you do not understand? And that's kind of how the story ends. He's in the boat. I kind of like, you know, this is the boat. He's in the boat and he's just, guys, if you don't let the Lord do a work in your perception and comprehension to break out of this mute state, you're going to be just like the Pharisees and you're going to be just like Herod. And the only way that we break out of that is through a work of the Holy Spirit in us. They're going to eventually break out of this in Luke chapter 24 when they see Jesus risen from the dead and he, it says he prayed for them that they might comprehend. And then they got it. And then after they got it, he sent the Holy Spirit upon them so they could just be powerful people who remembered it. And then they went out and told everybody. They remembered it. I'm going to close with this quote. The yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod appears to be the misunderstanding or even disbelief of the disciples that would be in effect as adversarial as that of Antipas and the Pharisees. The disciples are unaware of their actual condition. They quibble about the meaning of bread without realizing that they are being infected by a deadly cancer. Their failure to comprehend can produce a danger, uh, can produce a hardness of heart that is tantamount to the declared opposition of the Pharisees and Herod. The danger is the more deceptive in their case, since they're in daily contact with Jesus, and as in the case of Jesus' mothers and brothers, the fact that they are in the physical proximity with Jesus may lead them to presume they are also with him in purpose and mission. Their proximity to Jesus must grow into understanding and understanding into faith. Or else, like Judas Iscariot, it will in the end inoculate them to the meaning of his person and work. And so, uh, as we close, we're just going to pray and we're going to uh, just do a couple songs wrapping up. Um, just asking the Lord to make us people of faith. People of faith that trust him. People of faith uh, that declare him. And... Uh, and man, it's, it's kind of deep, isn't it? I mean, I hope maybe, I hope you guys, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to get it. What was the issue here? And I think we're getting it enough today that we can just pray and pray as we're singing in the end. Um, Lord, help us to believe. 
Help us to believe and help us to trust in you. 